Uh, it's a great clip from that movie, and it's, it's a reminder that people have been seeking and searching for and chasing immortality for ages. Across, across actually all ages and all cultures, this is like a common thing. You find it in literature and legend. You think about the quest for you know, the fountain of youth and you know, Ponce de Leon. You've probably read that legend at some point in your life. But, but all through legend, all through literature, you have this quest for the fountain of life, this quest for, this search for immortality. Now, I'll admit that most of us are not on a quest like Indiana Jones here, uh, and, and I doubt that very many of us really believe that, that we are immortal or that we'll live forever, uh, but the truth is, is that practically we live like that. Practically we live like we are immortal very often. Why do I say that? Well, I think because uh, we, we always are at the point of trying to uh, ignore death. We're always at the point of trying to ig- ignore and pretend that it actually doesn't ex- exist, to not consider it, to not ever actually think about it, to almost believe that we can beat it. If you remember the famous uh, Dylan Thomas uh, poem he wrote uh, in honor of his father who was dying, remember what he said? He said, do not go gently, do not go gentle into that good night, into death. What did he say? Rage, rage against the dying of the light. In other words, you can beat it, kick against it, fight against it, and you can win. Uh, we tend to believe that our doctors and our researchers, our, our drugs can, can save us, can, can prolong our life. But you know what the ironic thing is? If you look in, like, for instance, Psalm 90, you know what it says there? It says, uh, the days of a man, the years of a man are 70 years or perhaps 80 if he's strong. You know what the average lifespan is in the United States today, 3,000 years later? 78 years old. Uh, it hasn't changed a whole lot over the years. Uh, we have spiritualists and holy people, ma- people selling kind of this health and wealth gospel, telling you if you're only faithful enough, you're only godly enough, you're only good enough, you only give enough, then, you know, basically you'll live forever. God will help you beat every single problem and obstacle in your life, every single disease. But the truth is, in 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the same people selling that kind of gospel will also be in the grave. We tend to think our exercise, our health, our surgeries, our vitamins, our creams, whatever, uh, will stave off this fearful thing called death. But what Solomon comes to see in Ecclesiastes is that even the godly die, even the smart, even the rich, just like, just like the dumb, just like the poor, everyone will meet that end. And you think about what we value as a society. Look on our magazine covers. Look at the articles. Look at, the, look at our heroes. Look at the athletes. Uh, we admire. Look at our TV shows. We have TV shows like The Bold and the Beautiful, The Young and the Restless. I mean, look at these magazine covers, and who's featured? The youthful, young, vi- vitality, the, the beautiful. What political candidates do we trust? Those that are young and articulate and, and uh, good-looking. Those, that, that's how we function in life. Those are the things that we value. It's been said that, that teenagers kind of think of themselves as immortal, right? Teenagers think they're immortal, but the truth is, there's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which we all think that we are. And Solomon said there's nothing new here. There's nothing new under the sun with that. So hear what he says here about the end of life facing and confronting uh, death. Uh, Ecclesiastes 11, 9 to 12, 8. He says, Rejoice, young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. 
Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners about the street. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or a pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. This is God's word. This is God's word? It seems so morbid, doesn't it? If you actually listened, if you actually heard what was being said, it sounds so morbid. And we, we, so often we want the Bible to simply behave itself, right? Just deal with the nice stuff, Bible. Just deal with the nice stuff, God. Just deal with the easy stuff. We want the Bible to behave itself, to behave in a certain way. But it won't. The Bible will only deal in reality. And the Bible will force us into ourselves dealing with reality as well. And so uh, I want to make a shocking statement, at least what I think is a shocking statement, and what, what comes out of the text here. And I think what Solomon is trying to say, is the heart of what he's trying to say is this. If you want to live life fully, then you must face death squarely. If you want to live life fully, then you must be willing to face death squarely. If you want to get all there is out of life, if you want to suck the gusto out of life, the marrow out of life, if you want to live um, well and enjoy life and really uh, take it on, he's saying, then you have to face, you have to reckon with death. Eugene Peterson says this in his book, Leap Over a Wall. He says, learning how to live necessarily involves a good deal of meditation on and consideration of death. If we don't give our full attention to death, but spend our lives avoiding the subject and obscuring it with euphemisms, we diminish our lives. Denial of death is avoidance of life. Denial of death is avoidance of life. Think about the way the Bible does this. I mean, think about Jesus' own life. Jesus, from beginning to end, is focused, preparing for, meditating on his death. Uh, think about the way the gospel writers do this. Uh, the book of Mark is 16 chapters long, and seven, uh, Jesus lived 33 years, right? Seven chapters of 16 in Mark deals with the last week of his life. John is uh, 21 chapters long, I think, and uh, the last 10 chapters deal with um, the last week of his life. So, I mean, almost 50% of what they write about Jesus has to do uh, with, his, with his death. And ultimately, uh, we must face it too. It, it, can't, it, it can be ignored, but it cannot be avoided. Um, it cannot simply be acknowledged, it must be faced. And, and what he's saying here is that the good life will actually come when we confront death before it confronts us. And so I want to say there's actually three things that, that, that this confrontation of death, actually dealing with, actually thinking about it, will teach us about life, about how to live life. And the very first thing is that it will teach us uh, our purpose in life. It will teach us that we have a purpose in life. If you, if you, if you were listening to the, the words, you notice it started out addressing young people, right? started out addressing youth, the teenagers, the people who are still in the prime of their lives. And what did it, what did it say? It says, rejoice, young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart. 
But know that all these things God will bring you to judgment. Now, what do we expect him to say there to the, the young people? What do we expect him to say there to the teenagers? All right, teenagers, you know this Christianity thing. Get your life straight. Get ordered. Get, get, stop having all this fun. Get it all, in, get it all in line. What does he say? He says, rejoice, enjoy life, follow your heart, walk in the ways of your eyes. How can he say that? Well, the thought of death has a remarkable way of showing what really brings pleasure in life. You see what he says there at the end of chapter 11? He says that youth is, is vanity. The dawn of life is vanity. I, that translation is bad. Uh, that word is actually not vanity. I, I said this in, the, in week one, if you were here. It's mist, it's vapor. In other words, it's not empty, it's not vanity, it's not meaningless to be young. He's saying it's good to be young, but what he's saying is it's like mist. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's like a vapor that's there and it's puff, it's gone. It's gone like smoke. Um, if you're at all past kind of your college years, you've probably started to realize this, that I used to be athletic and strong and now I feel all these aches and pains in my body. I used to be, you know, smart and nimble and now my body's almost, you know, betraying me at times. It feels like it's not working right. Uh, that's what he, so what he's saying is, to young people, to youth, he's saying you, you only have your youth for a certain amount of time. You know, someone said youth is wasted on the young. Uh, it's usually true because we, when you're young, you don't really realize what a gift it is. You don't really realize what you have. And what Solomon is saying is if you're young, if you still have strength, if you still have vitality, then go out and use it. Go out and enjoy it. He's saying, do you, do you enjoy biking? Well, go out and bike because a day might be coming when you may not be able to do that. Do you like cooking? Go out and cook and enjoy these things because the day may be coming when you can't enjoy it any longer. Do you like reading? Do you like... Um, I don't know, going to the park, do you like spending time with your kids? Whatever it is, he's saying, enjoy life uh, while you're young. One of the things I used to love to do when I was a kid, like from probably first grade all the way up until like the end of college, is play football, but not just football, tackle football. I mean, I, I wasn't ever good enough to play college or anything like that, but, um, but I always, we always played in college, and I love playing tackle football. And uh, just a couple of years ago, a bunch of friends and I got together and decided, let's don't just play flag football. Let's play tackle football. You know, let's, let's really go out and, and, and give this thing a, a go. And so you got all these kind of from mid-20s to early 30s, which is, you know, that's still pretty young. But unless you're a professional athlete, you really shouldn't be playing tackle football with other grown men. I mean, it's just, it's just not good. And so, you know, it's, when I said bye to Amy in the morning, I mean, that afternoon, she just kind of laughed. And I think she couldn't wait to see me come home. But, uh, you know, we came home and all of us were beat up and bruised and just hurting and in pain, but, but we still did it. I mean, you know, we're still trying to grab hold of youth while we still had just a little bit of it left. And so it teaches us how to enjoy and take pleasure in life. But I think meditation on death will also show us how precious life really is. It'll show it. it there's nothing really like death to show you how precious life actually is. Um, he says this in Ecclesiastes 12, 6, and 7. Look at the images he uses for death there. He says, Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. What's the image there? Precious metals, right? There's a silver cord. There's a golden bowl. In other words, it's very precious, right? There's precious metal. But you also see how fragile it is. There's a silver cord and just easily a snap. There's a golden bowl that's easily broken. So what he's saying there is life is very precious, but it's also very 
fragile. And everybody that's, that cheats death, so to speak, will tell you this. Anybody that kind of, you know, they're in a terrible accident and they lived through it or they, they beat cancer, uh, they will tell you that suddenly life became more precious because I've been to the edge where death is. And suddenly the grass is greener and the sky is bluer and my kids are more beautiful and sweet and, and, and everything about life is more precious. Then he uses two other instruments after the cord and the bowl. He says, um, there's a pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel is broken at the cistern. Now those aren't precious, they're actually useful. But you see what's happened. Do you see the tragedy of what Solomon's talking about there? He says, here's the, fount- here's, the, here's the pitcher. What does a pitcher do? What do you use a pitcher for? Well, to gather water or drink and then pour it out for people, to give it away to people. But what's happened? The fountain has been broken at the cistern. The the pitcher's there at the cistern ready to get some water, but it's been broken. It can no longer carry water. It can no no longer serve the purpose, the usefulness that it has. And here's what Solomon says. The greatest tragedy in life is not death, but it is to get to the end of life and look back and say, Wasted. Wasted. To look back over your life and say, I wasted it. I should have been carrying life refreshing water to people. And now, I, when, I, when I could do it, now I didn't do it. And now that I want to do it, I can't do it because I'm broken at the cistern, he says. One indication that we're chasing immortality is that we have no focus in life. We have no passion. We have no drive. We have no, no purpose. And so he's saying, take stock now, before it's too late, before you get to the end of life and say, waste it. Take stock now, what's really important. And he's saying, when you really confront death, it has a strange way of clarifying this very thing. Thomas Brooks, the old, the old Puritan, said this, Uh, He said, it's a very high point of Christian wisdom and prudence. Always to look upon the good and the great things of this world as a man will certainly look upon them when he comes to die. In other words, have you taken stock of your life and thought, how will I see all this? How will I see all my life? How will I see all my accomplishments? All, uh, you know, whatever I did with my life, how will I see it on the day of confrontation, the day of reckoning, the day of death? What will it really mean? And he pleads with the youth. He pleads with the young people. That's what he says in in chapter 12, 1. Young people, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Why does he say that? Because he's saying the the, the very time in which you have strength and vitality and, and passion and skill is a time when you're young. And don't waste that time. Don't use it up. Don't waste your life. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. The problem is, is our culture trivializes so, so many of our things into basically killing our dreams. Their culture trivializes things, especially for, I think, for teenagers. And, you know, teenagers, college kids, I, it's so easy to be so consumed with, you know, being cool, with having the right clothes, with having the right kind of cell phone, with saying the right kind of words, um, with just doing the right kind of things, with impressing the right kind of people. I, I know it is. I remember when I was in high school, 
a long time ago, but 12, I mean, 12 years ago, it's not that long ago. I remember how important it was how you carried your books. I don't know if it still is, uh, but when I was in high school, you had to have a Jan Sport book bag, and you had to, and this changed from year to year, because one year, what you did is you had to be carrying it on one shoulder, and you couldn't have the other, if you had the other strap on, you were like total geek, total nerd. So you put it on, and you loop your hand in, you know, you had to kind of walk in a certain way down the halls. I know you can all picture me doing that. But then the next year, it was totally different. The next year, if you wanted to be really cool, you had to have the strap on both shoulders and, you know, both, both thumbs looped, and, you know, you walk down the hall basically the, the same kind of way. And all the people that didn't do that were, you know, total nerds, total geeks, you know, way out there. You know, I remember, like, you had to wear the braided belt. You remember that? And you looped it through and hung it down. Some of you will, some of you want, you know. The, the tight-rolled jeans and the sabagos and all that kind of stuff. You know, so, some of you are my age and you remember this. Some of you are wondering what I'm talking about. But the point is, you're wondering what I'm talking about because 10 years later, nobody cares. Nobody cares about it. I wish, I really, I so wish that somebody could have impressed on me when I was in high school and college that in 10 years, you will not care what Johnny and Susie thought about the way you were dressed. 10 years, you will not, you will not, you will wish you had not used up your life, used up your young years, used up your teenage years obsessing over whether or not I had the right jeans on or whether or not I looked like a geek, you know? And, 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 you know, if I was wearing that same stuff I just talked about now, you guys would all say, he looks like a total geek. And I'm probably doing something now that, that does portray that, but I don't know it. So that's the, you know, that's the joy, is if you don't know it. That was way too long of a laugh for that. <laughs> um... And adults, we're the same way. I mean, if we're honest, we're just more sophisticated. We're the same way. We're just more sophisticated. What does the Scripture says, say? The Scripture says, Psalm 90, Lord, teach me to number my days. What does it mean to number your days? Well, I thought of an illustration. Imagine if I gave you uh, $100 and said, this $100 is all you have, is all you can use for the whole next month. You have to live on $100. has to give you all your meals, room and board, whatever. And you have to live on $100. That's scenario one. Or scenario two is, I give you a million dollars. Say, on a million dollars, you can live for the month. You have a million dollars just to make it through one month. In what scenario is money more precious? More precious when you only have the $100, isn't it? You've numbered. If you have a million, that's 10,000 here, 10,000 there. What does it really matter? I mean, a million in a month is like, you know, infinity. But if you only have $100, each dollar becomes precious. You, you spend it so wisely. It's got to get you the next meal. It's got to get you to the next day. And that's what he's saying about, about confronting death and numbering our days. Realizing that we only have so many to spend. And we don't want to get to the end of life and say, waste it. We don't want to get to the end of life and say, waste it. And so take advantage of every precious day. Dream big. Dream big for Christ. I mean, I don't know. What can you dream about? I mean, are you good at languages? There's 3,000 languages that need a Bible translated. 3,000. I mean, do something like, think of something, dream of something, take a risk. I mean, think about um, Jesus. He, Jesus was more focused on death than any person I can imagine in history, and yet in three years, he accomplished his purpose. A purpose he did more in three years than all of us together will do in a lifetime because he was focused. He had a purpose. So stop chasing immortality. Start taking risk uh, for Christ. Um, okay. 
I spent way too long on that point. I'm going to move through the other ones a little more quickly. Um, so it teaches us our purpose in life. When we take death seriously, it teaches us also that we are powerless over our lives. Now, let's be honest. In America, we are control freaks. Um, we chase uh, control and power as if life were simply a puzzle to be solved, uh, as if it were like a riddle to be answered, a, a technique to be perfected. We, we really want, we think we can control all the outcomes. We think if we just got the right Congress to pass the right laws or the right president to get the right initiatives, the right scientists with the right research, uh, you know, if we had the right kinds of insurance, then we can, you know, protect everything and, and control every outcome. If we, if we get the, the right philosophy for raising our children, you know, are you a baby-wise parent? Are you a healthy sleep habits baby parent? Are you a um, fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of parent? Like, what, what do you do? Like, all these things, they're all well and good in their time. But in essence, we're grabbing for control. And this is, to be, this is to try to be like God. It's the original sin from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God. And they died trying. And what God is saying with that is that death is the ultimate testimony that we are not God. That you and I are not God. That we don't have power over the universe. We don't have control. Notice what, how he describes death in, in chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, he uses this image. He says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. What's he, what's he uh, making death like there? It's a gathering storm, isn't it? See, the sun, the moon, the darkened, and the, and the clouds come back. He's saying, there's a storm coming in life. And guess what? I've watched a lot of storms. I used to love, that was one, of, one thing I love about the summer is like, when I, was, when I grew up in South Carolina, you, you sit on the porch and just watch these storms come in and huge thunderstorms, you know, um, in my parents' house. But I, ne I never stopped a storm. You know, I've wished storms would stop. I wish they would stop thundering, lightning, stop raining, stop flooding. I've never stopped a storm. I'm completely powerless to stop a storm. And that's what he's saying here is that storms are coming in life. And in fact, a final storm called death is coming. And you and I are powerless to stop it. I can't prevent it. We can only... We can only I can, can't prevent the storm. I can only watch it, see it, experience it. So no matter what we do, death will come. Our, our money, our diet, our godliness, our health, our doctors, our drugs, nothing, nothing will prevent that moment. We're powerless over it. I mean, think about how much of your life have you been powerless over? Anybody in the room plan the day they'd be born and what, who your parents would be and what kind of family you'd grow up in and what everybody would be like? I mean... So much in life is powerless. Anybody plan the bad news from the doctor or the, the sickness or the disease? No. My wife and I got married when we were in our mid-20s. And um, three months later, uh, my young, beautiful, strong, athletic wife was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. We didn't plan that. We were powerless before that. There was nothing that we could do, nothing that could... Stop that. But what he's saying is that this is actually meant to be liberating. It sounds so depressing, doesn't it? But he's saying it's actually meant to be liberating because once you realize your powerlessness, that life cannot be controlled, it can only be enjoyed. Once you realize you can't control and master life, then you can actually start to sit back and enjoy it and appreciate the gifts that come. Once we're not trying to control our kids and our spouses, 
and our friends, then we can actually enjoy them. And once we stop trying to be God, then we can actually enjoy God. What he's saying is that God cannot be mastered, but he can be trusted. You know, the famous line, the witch in the wardrobe story, I've, you've probably heard it before, or I've probably shared it before, where uh, the kids are coming up with Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver says, tomorrow you're going to go meet Aslan, the lion, representing Jesus, right? Tomorrow you're going rep- to go meet the great lion. And they say, a great lion, is he safe? And the beaver looks confused. Safe? No. Who said anything about safe? But he's good. He's not safe. But he's good. He can't be mastered, but he can be trusted. We want a safe, predictable, controllable God that we can put in our box and tell him when the right things are, when the timing is right. But that's not life under the sun. That's not life of a creature. The storms will gather. And you and I can't control the storms, but we can be moved into dependence. We can, be, we can call out on the one who calms the storm. We can call out on the one who controls the storms in all of life. Um, so death teaches us a purpose in life and powerlessness over life. Uh, and it also teaches us that pain comes with life. Um, if you look at the poem in verses 3 to 5, this is poetry. Um, you have to enter it with proper mourning and sadness. And, and some of you will recognize these words uh, because you're experiencing them. And some of you will recognize these words because you're caring for parents who are experiencing them or grandparents. And uh, they're very powerful and very painful at the same time. This is what he says. This is how he describes death in 12, 3 to 5. Um, and you can, you can kind of think about reality as you, as you ponder it. He says, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. In other words, the strong men are bent. The strong man has gotten old and he, he no longer stands upright. I just read the other day... Um, Johnny Unitas, you guys know who that is, I hope, uh, great quarterback for the Colts uh, years ago, um, a strong man. It takes him 45 minutes now to get out of bed and uh, because he's so beaten up from the years in football. And so what, what he's saying is like the people, you know, all of our athleticism and the people that we see as the greatest athletes today in 40 years, a strong man will be bent and we have to face that. He says the grinders cease because there are few. The grinders are our teeth. Um, those who look through the windows are dimmed. It means that, you know, your eyes, uh, the, the power of your eyes begins to, to go. The doors on the street are shut. The sound of the grinding is low. The daughters of song are brought low. In other words, the hearing, you don't hear as well as you used to. So they're afraid of what is high. Terror is in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The almond trees blossom white. So in other words, hair turns white. Some of us would just like to have hair when we get older. But for me... See, I don't even get to do the white hair. I just have to have no hair. Um, it says, the almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. Grasshopper's dragging itself along. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, going through my grandfather's fields, he had a farm, and trying to catch these huge grasshoppers that are like this big. I mean, those things can bounce. I mean, it seemed like a mile in the sky. And you could almost never catch them. They were so nimble, so fast. And what he says here is, the grasshopper is dragging and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. He says desire fails. Um, you don't have to get graphic, but that word there is aphrodisiac. And what he's saying is um, even Hugh Hefner is going to fail in the end. Even Hugh Hefner 
is, is not going to make it. And all the great playboys will come to the same end here um, at, the end, at the end of life. And so I think we have to be cautious because some people say things like, Christians like to say things like, death is our friend. I think we have to be cautious with that. Is death our friend? If you sat by the bedside of a dying person, you probably wouldn't say that. Or if you're the caretaker of dying parents, you might not say that. Death is a curse. Death is not part of God's original intention, not part of His original creation. And so many of you are experiencing that. Many of you are looking into your parents' eyes and experiencing that. We're we're going through that with my grandmother uh, right now, and I can tell you it's, it's painful to look into the eyes of a loved one who, since she was 65, could not function in any way on her own, could not fix her own meals or comb her own hair. And we're going to see her next week when we fly home, and it's painful. It's painful. As a pastor, you get to sit at a lot of bedsides of dying people. A young pastor grows up pretty quickly at bedsides like that. Because you begin to see, you begin to experience reality. But the hope is, is that pain, even though pain comes with life, there's no part of death that Jesus has not entered into before us. There's no part of death that Jesus hasn't gone on ahead before us as our Savior. Death proves that pain is part of the world. Death proves that some things cannot be fixed or controlled or manipulated. They simply must be endured. They simply must be born. They simply must be suffered. Death refuses to let us put God in a box. But it makes us broken people, needy people, rather than the attractive, have-it-all-together people. We want to be identified with the young, strong, vital, cool kind of crowd. But it's when we're stripped by pain that Jesus can refit us and actually free us. He can rename us, restore us, reclothe us. And see, if you're older in here, you know that is true. You know that pain comes with life. You know that you can't be avoided or you're powerless to stop it. If you're older in, the, in this congregation, you know more than us as younger people. And so what I would say to all of us is that let's be thankful we have a church that is a multi-generational church. Sure, there's lots of disadvantages. You know, everybody's not, it's not my kind of music this week or that week or, or whatever. My preference is this and that. You try to span, you know, everywhere from toddler all the way up to, you know, 80 and 90 years old. We have a multi-generation church, and I, I dream that there would be sages in this church, wise people in this church, that, that, that guys like me, I'm thankful for the friends I have in this church. I'm 30, that I have friends who are 50, 45, 50, 60, 70, 80, that speak into my life and, and bring me wisdom and bring me perspective. If you're older in the congregation, don't envy the youth, but help us. Help the youth. Be in their lives. And if you're young, don't pretend like there's nothing that you can learn, nothing that anybody can teach you. What? Ask somebody older to be in your life. Ask somebody 15, 20, 30 years older to be in your life, and it will be a tremendous blessing. Um, and so death, death teaches a lot of things about how to live life well. Um, 
And this is what this is what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17. He says, So we don't lose heart. Though our outer nature, our outer bodies are wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. This slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the problem is we want just the opposite. What Jesus, what God is saying, what Jesus is saying there is that. As you see your, other, your body start to deteriorate, things waste away, some of us much earlier than we ever expected, much too young, that God is doing a work on the inside. And that as the outer becomes older, the inner becomes almost newer and younger and more strengthened. Typically, we want the opposite. We want a beautiful outside and don't care as much about the inside. But God is saying, the wasting away of your body is a reminder to you that if you believe in me, I am renewing you day by day on the inside, and I will save you. And so death is not our friend, but ultimately it's not the end either. There's so much more, and he comes in 12 and 13 to 14, he says, this is the end of the matter. Everything has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment. And so ultimately death becomes the great divider, the great dividing place where it says, fear God, keep his commandments, for he'll bring everything into judgment. And what do we do at that moment? Who are you going to trust at that moment? At the great divide. And he says this, look, look to Jesus. He is the one who faced the reality of death, isn't he? He was the strong man who was bent low. He was the man who became deaf through the blows to his head, whose eyes were blinded by hate. He was the man that crawled along like a grasshopper, dragging himself, carrying the cross for you and for me. And so for us, if you believe in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, there is hope because Jesus went there for you. He went there for us, before us. And guess what? Three days later, they came to the tomb and it was empty. Because Jesus was not dead, but as we sang, he was alive. He had been resurrected. He was, he had new lives. And so we think, when we think about death, we have hope because we don't look to keep this, make our lives last forever. We don't look to get rid of this body. We look for a resurrection body like Jesus who will be with him forever and ever and like him forever and ever. That's why Paul closes 1 Corinthians by saying this perishable body will put on the imperishable and this mortal body, the immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and mortal on immortality, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is removed by Christ because he's paid the price. So we started with one poem, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. But there was, before Dylan Thomas, a much wiser poet, John Donne, who said, Death, be not proud, though some have called you mighty, but just asleep, a short sleep, and we awake eternally. Death, thou must die. Jesus has killed death. Let that wash over you. If you want immortality, there it is. It's only found in Christ. To be with him forever and ever. And so as we close the series, what are you chasing? You find that every chase without God is a vapor, it's a mist, it's chasing the wind. It will lead you to frustration and dissatisfaction. You will get to the point, you will get everything you've ever wanted and say, I still 
haven't found what I'm looking for. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. Are you asking? Are you seeking? Are you knocking? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. Knock, the door will be open. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. The chase ends at the foot of the cross and the foot of the tomb of the resurrected Christ. Let's pray.